Thank you very much. Well, I have a little bit of an easier job this morning in that there was a fabulous guideline statement this past year. Um, Susie didn't quite have that, that opportunity with UC. Um, but it is a little bit intimidating as two of the authors on this guideline are my moderators to my left. And so let's see how I do in terms of updating some of the highlights of this guideline. And so where I'll take you today over the next 20 minutes is we'll talk a little bit about Crohn's disease diagnosis and then definitions of disease severity because we really do need to consider not only how the, symptom, the patient is doing in terms of symptoms at an individual moment, but also their risk factors for more aggressive disease. We'll also talk about treatment goals uh, and medical management. While I'll touch on the mild to moderate patient as well, we'll focus on the moderate to severe patient and biologic agents. And then outside the guideline, we'll discuss some um, separate evidence on positioning therapies and thinking about specific therapies in subpopulations. And so when we think about Crohn's disease diagnosis, certainly we all know the hallmark symptoms, abdominal pain, diarrhea, fatigue, weight loss, in children, growth failure, anemia, and certainly extraintestinal manifestations. It's not infrequent that a patient will present primarily uh, with an extraintestinal manifestation to then subsequently be diagnosed with bowel disease. And the guideline statement and we all emphasize that Crohn's disease is a chronic, destructive, progressive disease. And therefore, we feel that there's an opportunity to intervene earlier in disease course prior to some of that destruction. The traditional laboratory evaluation is the initial step in diagnosis. The, the guideline statement does provide some evidence that there is a specific role for fecal calprotectin, and this can help to differentiate uh, inflammatory bowel disease from irritable bowel syndrome. And so hopefully this statement and this evidence will help us in some of our reimbursement uh, of fecal calprotectin. This was a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. And importantly, at this point, based on the evidence, there's no role for genetic testing uh, for Crohn's disease diagnosis, and no role at this time uh, for serologic markers for diagnosis of Crohn's disease. And that iliocolonoscopy is recommended for diagnosis, and that about 80% of patients will have inflammation within reach uh, of iliocolonoscopy. And so when we think about once we've diagnosed Crohn's disease, disease severity, it is important to recognize that there is a small segment of the Crohn's disease population, about 20%, that will have an indolent course. Um, however, the majority of patients really do require active management where we're actively adjusting therapies to titrate and reach goals. Unfortunately, up to 80% of patients with Crohn's disease will actually require hospitalization. And the 10-year risk of surgery, a number to quote to your patients, is about 50%. And what we're seeing is that this number is actually uh, reducing and coming down uh, in the biologic era to 30%, and therefore emphasizing the role of using these medications to try to reduce their risk of surgery over time. We also know that there are factors that are associated with increased risks of progressive disease. And so it's very important to address these factors with your patients early so that, that it can help in medication selection and support uh, the need for appropriate therapies. And so a young age at diagnosis is a risk factor. Initial extensive bowel involvement, particularly upper tract involvement, is, is a very aggressive uh, phenotype. And that's something that I will treat uh, more aggressively up front. Uh, perianal uh, and severe rectal disease. Penetrating or stenosing uh, disease phenotype at diagnosis is certainly an indication uh, for uh, initiating more aggressive therapies. And interestingly, uh, we're starting to have some emerging data that uh, visceral adiposity is actually, may actually be a risk factor for penetrating disease. And so it's something to consider when you're going through some of this risk profile for your individual patient. 
And so, you know, I think that uh, one of the themes I've seen at this meeting um, is that really we need new definitions of disease severity. You know, many of our old definitions, as Corey just went through, really focused on symptoms at one given point, such as the Crohn's disease activity index. Um, but really now we're moving towards um, a, a conglomerate of components to address disease severity, where we do need to include the actual endoscopy, whether those ulcers are deep. Um, we can use scoring systems, such as the simple endoscopic score for Crohn's disease. And we also need to, in the same umbrella, uh, consider are these uh, prognostic factors, the young age, the bowel involvement, um, the perianal disease, or penetrating and stenosing disease at diagnosis. And so when you put all of these pieces of information together, it helps you in terms of selecting the appropriate therapy for that patient in an individualized fashion. And so what are the goals? Uh, where should we be aiming with each of our patients when we're having these initial discussions on therapy selection? Is that mucosal healing is a goal. Um, and we can use endoscopic scores to monitor response. Because really, I'll show you some of the data, there's, there's a lack of correlation between symptoms and endoscopy. It's much more so in Crohn's disease than in ulcerative colitis. And that one important um, really take-home message is that uh, evaluation within one year of a resection for post-operative endoscopic recurrence is, is really the gold standard. And so we really need to assess for mucosal healing, particularly in that post-operative stage. And the guideline statement did provide um, some supporting evidence that fecal biomarkers may have a role in non-invasive monitoring of response to therapy. And again, hopefully some of these statements will help us moving forward with reimbursement for fecal cow. But also for, for the first time, there was a real emphasis on patient quality of life uh, as a goal of therapy. And that we as the gastroenterologists need to be treating the whole patient and taking into account the management of stress, anxiety, and depression. And so this becomes another goal uh, of therapy. So let me show you some of the data behind um, some of those recommendations. And so basically this, I, I just basically put this up for you all to see the scatter plot. So this was a study that looked at um, on the x-axis severity of ulcerations and on the y-axis symptoms. And as you can see, there's really just no correlation here. And so many times uh, we have an individual, uh, as Susie had mentioned earlier, who has quite sym symptomatic from diarrhea, um, but may not have any active inflammation. But the, fl the converse is also true, severe ongoing inflammation in a relatively asymptomatic patient. So we do need to use other tools to help us to monitor response to therapy in those individuals. And so one of the things I would encourage you to do, and, and I have to admit, I am not 100% with this either, but when we do use standardized instruments like an endoscopy scoring system, it really helps us to track response in a somewhat more objective way for our patients um, so that when we're reassessing to ensure that we have mucosal healing, we can see improvement. And so this is the simple endoscopic uh, score for Crohn's disease. And as you can see, it's categorized um, into segments. Um, there are five segments, as I listed at the top. Um, and then within each segment, you look at the, um, the ulcerated surface, the affected surface, and whether there's presence of, of narrowing. And importantly, the size of the ulcers plays a role. I think one take-home message, both from ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, is those big, deep ulcers are a poor prognostic factor. And the scoring system helps to weight that so you can actually apply it uh, to an individual patient and see who is um, more at risk. And, and again, in terms of scoring, inactive is up to about six on this scale, mild to moderate is seven to 15, and greater than or equal to 16 is severe. Certainly when someone just has ileal inflammation, those numbers change somewhat because when you only have one segment of inflammation, even a score of five or six is actually um, quite active in that individual. 
But I think that what a system like this allows you to do is someone who has very deep ulcerations like this is very different than someone with just mild superficial apsa. And having that uh, helps us to understand and select appropriate therapies for those patients. And so um, there is a role for fecal biomarkers, as, as I mentioned earlier. And they really do correlate with these endoscopic scales, such as the SESCD. And fecal calprotectin can actually be used to monitor for postoperative recurrence as well. And so um, what's, it, what's interesting is, is there have been a lot of levels um, discussed in the literature, and there may be different levels for each individual um, process, but levels of over 100 have actually shown endoscopic recurrence in the um, postoperative state with a sensitivity of about 89%. And so this could be another version of postoperative monitoring uh, that could be useful. And in patients with an anti-TNF-induced remission, fecal cal of uh, over about 150 um, has a sensitivity of 92% and a specificity of 83% to present, predict relapse. In no way, shape, or form are these perfect tests, but we also can't do a colonoscopy every four months. And so these are the supporting evidence behind some of these non-invasive biomarkers that may help us in a monitoring strategy. And now I'd like to just spend a couple minutes on um, the emphasis on stress, anxiety, and depression. You know, I think none of us are psychiatrists, um, but I think identifying uh, someone in your community who's used to working with individuals with chronic disease can be really life-saving for our patients and can really help them to improve their quality of life. And for the first time, the guidelines really emphasize this this year. So we know that there's a strong association between depression and flares of Crohn's disease, and that perceived stress issues, uh, almost all of my patients feel that stress plays a role um, in, in their disease exacerbation. It's related to control, disease management, and it has an impact on lifestyle, and really a, quite a strong relationship with IBD symptoms. And those patients who do have major depression and anxiety have a much greater risk of surgery, and they have much higher healthcare utilization. And so we need in the 2018 and 2019 management of Crohn's disease to address these factors. And so there is a statement, a recommendation statement in the guideline that assessment and management of stress, depression, and anxiety should be included as part of a comprehensive care of the Crohn's disease patient. And so if there's one take-home message from this talk is identify that person in your community who can help with these aspects of disease management, and it will greatly impact your patients. So let me move on to uh, treatment recommendations. And I think that this is one of the, my key take-home messages from the review of the data thus far, is that you know, I think that in my practice, um, I, do have, I did have patients with Crohn's on mesalamine, um, and the guideline really reviewed the evidence and showed that there's really no role uh, for mesalamine in Crohn's disease, in induction or maintenance. And, and let me emphasize that one more time. No role for mesalamine in induction or maintenance of Crohn's disease. Uh, there, are, there are some data on sulfasalazine, and so I do use some sulfasalazine in my practice for mild colonic disease. So there was a Cochrane review that showed that 45% of sulfasalazine patients entered remission um, as compared to about 29% of placebo patients. Um, so a risk ratio of about 1.4 in two studies. So some evidence, and I think for these patients, such as the picture with the mild apsa throughout their colon, sulfasalazine is a reasonable option. But I am no longer in my practice using uh, a mesalamine for ileal Crohn's disease. Um, the evidence are pretty clear at this point, and this is a real change uh, and something that I do want to emphasize. Certainly, we do have uh, budesonide uh, for induction in ileocecal Crohn's disease uh, with excellent uh, remission at eight weeks, 51% versus 20%, and that is an excellent induction agent uh, in this group. 
So let me move to moderate to severe Crohn's disease, and an emphasis that steroids are still an excellent agent, um, although clearly we all know uh, should be avoided for maintenance due to many of the adverse effects associated with these therapies. And thiopurines and methotrexate, while effective in maintenance, are not indicated for induction therapy. And recognizing that it may take up to 12 weeks uh, until efficacy, and so certainly you would need a steroid uh, induction uh, with initiation of one of these agents. And that TPMT testing uh, should be considered prior to the initial use of, of thiopurines. And that other therapies that historically have been discussed as potentials for Crohn's disease really have not been shown to be effective, such as cyclosporin, tacrolimus, um, mycophenolate, mofetil. And certainly many of us use these in kind of off-label salvage situations, but really are not uh, considered um, first or second um, line in terms of treatment of moderate to severe Crohn's disease. So let me just uh, run through briefly some of the data that fed into the guideline uh, in terms of biologic therapies, uh, anti-TNF uh, induction data. And, and as you can see here, I just put the uh, infliximab, adalimumab, and sertilizumab uh, induction data. And as you can see, um, certainly uh, effective therapies, um, but obviously we're not getting 100% uh, response with these therapies. Um, in the neighborhood here, um, we're mission uh, rates of approximately 30%. Um, and so that's just a number to keep in your head. When we look at maintenance, again, similar across infliximab, adalimumab, and sertilizumab um, from anti-TNFs for maintenance of remission. When you look here uh, at week 30, about 40-ish percent um, for each of our agents, uh, infliximab, adalimumab, and again, sertilizumab, pagol. But one of the only uh, comparative effectiveness studies we have, I think no talk on Crohn's disease could be complete without at least showing uh, the sonic data, but these data really fed importantly into the guideline. This is the first comparative effectiveness study in Crohn's disease, and actually there are others ongoing that will help to inform us uh, in terms of positioning of our therapies. But as you can see here, um, the combination with infliximab and azathioprine um, as compared to either agent alone is more effective for clinical clinical remission, as well as mucosal healing. And this is high-level data that fed into a graded recommendation statement, emphasizing the importance of combination therapy in patients with uh, Crohn's disease, particularly on uh, infliximab. And so, uh, you know, while we um, in here in the U.S. don't have a great deal of data in terms of biosimilar, um, I did want to put in a study that came out just this week uh, in Annals of Internal Medicine that provides quite a large number of patients um, with uh, Crohn's disease who were initiated on a biosimilar. This was a French nationwide health administrative database study, and there were over 5,000 infliximab-naive patients included. Um, they were over 15 years old, and they were about half and half between the originator infliximab as compared to the biosimilar. And what they did is they used a composite outcome of death, um, Crohn's disease-related surgery, all-cause hospitalization, or change to an alternate biologic. And the data showed um, essentially completely overlapping event-free survival curves. And so in this non-inferiority design, uh, the drug was turned was an, an equivalent to infli infliximab with a hazard ratio of 0.9 and really no difference in safety outcomes. So as we get more exposure to biosimilars here in the U.S., I know we've had several talks um, specific to this, it does seem in terms of the naive patient that we have very equivalent results um, with these agents. 
But when we're, whenever we're thinking about an agent, we also have to think about the risks of those therapies. Here are just some um, for anti-TNF. We think of infection, immunogenicity, potential infusion reactions. Very low absolute risks, but risks of lymphoma or melanoma. And then we do have to think about specific scenarios, um, such as um, paradoxical psoriasis or demyelination that can occur rarely, um, or exacerbation of heart failure. Other biologic therapies, um, vetalizumab, obviously, uh, we've, we've talked a great deal about these therapies here at this meeting, uh, an anti-adhesion molecule. And again, in the Gemini 2 trial, as you can see here, um, clinical remission um, rates at week six, as well as uh, clinical remission rates at week 52. Um, one of the things that I think has been emphasized is that in Crohn's disease, um, in terms of uh, initial uh, remission rates, it seems to be uh, better at week 10 than at week six. I will also emphasize that this was a very sick patient population, over half with prior TNF failure, um, and about half with prior Crohn's disease surgery, and many with fistulizing disease. But but we're still seeing, um, again, the uh, clinical remission rates here of about the same 30 to 40 percent. And as I mentioned, uh, importantly, um, patients with TNF failure are much more challenging to heal. Um, the, the onset of action is a little bit slower overall. And again, we keep seeing this prior biologic exposed patients may not have as robust a response to that next uh, biologic. The safety data are excellent across the vetalizumab trials, um, with almost uh, 3,000 patients, almost 5,000 um, patient years, no signal for increased malignancy risk, um, no signals for serious or opportunistic infections, low infusion reactions. There's no evidence of vetalizumab-induced PML. There was one reported case of PNL in a patient on vetalizumab. This was in Europe. But the patient did have HIV and significant immune suppression, and those were educated as the potential reasons for that case. But your patients may bring that up. Um, ustekinumab, um, again, uh, we have about two years of data on ustekinumab with our uh, dosing that is higher than the prior psoriasis dosing. It was proved in 2009 um, for psoriasis, inhibiting the P40 subunit of IL-12 and 23. And again, the Unity 1 and Unity 2 data, uh, again, just to emphasize uh, here, uh, clinical remission rates uh, very similar uh, at week 8 to what we've seen with the other biologics um, here um, 40, in the 40% range. But patients with prior TNF exposure, again, had a re reduced response to therapy. And in maintenance, uh, as you can see here, low rate of antibody formation and clinical remission rates of about 50%. Uh, as you can see here, steroid-free remission, 46%. So safety, um, adverse events with ustekinumab are similar across groups, minimal infection risks. We have not seen signals uh, for an increased lymphoma or cancer risk. And data from the P-Solar registry for psoriasis um, are very supportive that there are no major signals for in serious infectious or cancer risks. There have been a few isolated case reports of something called reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome uh, in psoriasis patients. There were none in the Crohn's disease trial, and right now, just as a brief review of the literature, there are two in Crohn's patients. And so this is a, a neurological syndrome that uh, may be very rarely uh, linked to ustekinumab. So let me just summarize the statements. Um, so uh, the statements for moderate to severe Crohn's disease, anti-TNF agents should be used to treat Crohn's disease that is resistant uh, to treatment with corticosteroids. Anti-TNF agents should be given for Crohn's disease refractory to thiopurines or methotrexate. Our one comparative effectiveness study, combination therapy of infliximab with thiopurines is more effective than treatment with either alone. And that vetalizumab, with or without an immunomodulator, is more effective than placebo for induction and maintenance of remission. 
and that ustekinumab, with or without an immunomodulator, is more effective than placebo for induction and maintenance of remission. But that doesn't tell us a lot about uh, positioning. Because we really are isolated, we don't have comparative effect in this study. We don't have head-to-head -head data across biologics, although that is coming. There is ongoing uh, clinical trial now uh, for comparative effectiveness of biologic agents. So we're left with clinical factors, judgments, some indirect data. This was the network meta-analysis that has been discussed here uh, that Sid Singh did just this year that reviewed the clinical trial data from the randomized controlled trials that I just showed to create indirect comparisons. And, and what these indirect comparisons show is that perhaps for biologic naive infliximab and adalimumab, maintenance of remission infliximab and adalimumab, anti-TNF exposed induction of remission, adalimumab and ustekinumab, recognizing that uh, the patients included had had prior response to TNF, um, and, and that the lowest rate of serious adverse events, ustekinumab and infliximab. And so well, how, do we how do we interpret this when we compare the biologics? We need comparative effectiveness trials, but that from some indirect evidence, perhaps um, with effectiveness, uh, anti-TNF um, may come out on top. Speed of onset, I did show you some of that data. Um, perhaps vetalizumab a little delayed with that 10-week response, but certainly for risks and side effects, vetalizumab uh, is an excellent agent from that standpoint. So as we're having these discussions with our patients, we do want to consider those risk factors um, that I discussed. And we also want to consider other factors, such as whether they have extraintestinal manifestations, prior malignancy, medical comorbidities, older age. And so as you put all of this together, it will help you to position these therapies for the individualized patient. So finally, in summary, definitions of disease severity now include symptoms, endoscopy, and prognostic factor. The goals of therapy are now symptom and endoscopic based, um, and there is a role for fecal biomarkers. Mild disease is less common, but when present, 5-ASA is not indicated. There is less response or remission to Crohn's disease after an initial biologic failure with a subsequent biologic. And that we have multiple choices for moderate to severe disease. These choices are based on the specifics of the disease, the relationship between efficacy, speed, and safety, and in the setting of individual comorbidities. Thank you.